One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra this week at the How the Light Gets In Festival at Hay on Wye. Billions of people use the services of the internet, technology and computing giants every day, probably almost every hour of their lives, and it's all happened very fast. Between August 2014 and September 2015, the messaging service WhatsApp added more users than the populations of Germany, France, Italy and the UK combined. Facebook was not originally created to be a company, said Mark Zuckerberg, its CEO, in 2012 just. Uh, It was built to accomplish a social mission to make the world more open and connected. Is that right? How should we perceive these companies? Are they tax-dodging invaders of our privacy? Or wonderful examples of what humans can do developing new technology to solve problems that just a few years ago would have seemed utterly insurmountable? So are they giant corporations encroaching in every sphere or are they great innovators? Well, to discuss this, we've got a very strong panel here in Heian Wai. We've got Chian Wara, who is the UK opposition shadow minister for culture and the digital economy, and in an earlier life, an engineer in the private sector. We have uh, Professor Emerita Deirdre McCloskey, distinguished professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and the Spectator magazine, a conservative publication in the UK, describes her as a match for Thomas Piketty, the, uh, <laughs> the French economist. We've got Anatole Kolecki, British economist, a two-time British Press Award winner and the author of Capitalism 4.0, and also now with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And Margaret Heffernan, entrepreneur and CEO and author, particularly relevant for this, author of A Bigger Prize, a book about big companies and big scale and what it means for us all. So as is the format at the festival here, we'll get people's opening statements for three or four minutes, three minutes, I think, with four on the panel, just to say what their basic approach to these issues is. And let's start with Chianwara. Thank you very much. And it's, uh, it's great to be here. So question is, do the internet giants present a threat to government and democracy? And the answer is yes, but that is not the problem. Because Governments and democracy need to be disrupted by technology just as much as every, every other sector. You know, we've been discussing at this festival about the issues that we have with our democracy, about the failings of our democracy, the failings of our government, and not only the current Tory government. So that needs to be disrupted. The issue is, what is the impact it's having on the autonomy, the control, the empowerment of people, of citizens. And there the answer is also yes. Alex de Tocqueville said that the strength of a democracy can be measured in the value of the actions its people undertake. Where we are today with uh, your data being owned and controlled by other actors, your identity, your online identity being owned and controlled by other actors, algorithms driving um, what you purchase on Amazon or when you get a cab or who comes up top on dating sites, that is secret and hidden from you and also from regulators. And so when we look at this, the question, does size matter? It does for networks. I'm a network engineer. Size matters for networks because once you're in, networks attract 
more the bigger you are. So Google, Facebook, Amazon, there are huge networks and it's really hard to compete with those networks unless we change the system. That is what I would emphasize. You know, Google isn't evil. These companies are not evil and they have delivered huge benefits. You know, I don't know about you, but the fact that I can know where I'm going <laughs> um, uh, through Google Maps and that I can uh, look at the latest information, those are really powerful advantages. But we need to change the system so that our values, our democratic, equitable, social justice, paying your tax values are embedded in the system, which isn't the case now. Thank you very much. And now let's hear an opening set of remarks from Professor McCloskey from University of Illinois. I completely agree that it's important that there be disruptions of politics and, and um, government and older technologies. And certainly this item has changed our, our lives. She says brandishing an iPhone. <laughs> brandishing an iPhone. Um, Other ones are available. Yeah, I I think (laughs) we all have them. And they're great devices, and they're not threatening. Certainly the the size of Google and so on, as was just emphasized, is an advantage for their functioning. And we don't need to have the largest network, the largest monopoly which is the central state, to be regulating them. I find it strange that free people would regard this gigantic central government we have as a countervailing power, as was famously once said, to private monopolies. Private monopolies only survive as monopolies when they've got the backing of the government. Take, for example, the matter of Uber and Lyft, which, of course, is opposed by the monopoly of of cabs. And they are monopolies. They earn supernormal profits and go on, well, century after century, earning these profits because they're protected by governments, not because there's a natural monopoly. The cabs struggle against innovation. If we want to have a rich, generous, modern economy, we can't make advances in technology our enemy. We need to look to the future with optimism and good cheer. So I say to you, dears, be of good cheer. Google is not your enemy. Thank you very much. Uh, let's, let's move on to Anatole Kaletsky. So the problem is not the big companies, the problem is government. Like everybody else in this room, I've derived huge benefits from technology. I'm able to run a reasonably successful company that operates around the world from my bedroom. I'm able to lead a life of connection with my family, with my daughter living in Los Angeles and so on, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before. However, I strongly disagree with Deidre's view that there is no need for a countervailing power against these growing enterprises. And there are three reasons, two fairly trivial 
economic ones and one very profound ethical and philosophical ones. The economic ones are these companies believe themselves to be above both capitalism and government and rather sanctimoniously think that because they have this mission to change the world, to invent the future, they don't need to pay taxes, they can be exempt from regulation, whether it's about data or finance or transport, and that they should be exempt even from the prime responsibility of any government, which is to provide its population with security against violence and even death, as we saw in the case of Apple. You know, shocking and astonishing to me that Apple should uh, consider itself above the U.S. government in its right to protect, so-called protect, uh, the information on the iPhone. So this sanctimonious above government and capitalism is a, a very unattractive feature of these monopolies. The second monopoly feature, as Chi mentioned, is that when you have these huge companies, they divert capital and talent into their activities, making it difficult both to compete and also to carry out other activities which might be better uses of that capital and talent. If you compare the amount of uh, money and intellectual effort that is spent on research into developing the next generation of the iOS uh, system of, of Android with, for example, what goes into alternative energy or into antibiotics, you realize that there is a big diversion of resources created by the wealth of these monopolies. But by far the biggest objection, I think, is the ethical one. The fact is that artificial intelligence is accelerating at such a rate that it's taking over a lot of human activities, replacing jobs, and I'm not worried about that. But I think the next stage is that inevitably it will take control of more and more human activities. If we can have self-driving cars, very soon we'll have self-driving tanks. If we can have robot vacuum cleaners, very soon we will have robot soldiers and killers. If we can have computers judging our credit, whether we're entitled to borrow from banks, perfectly logical extension of that is that computers should judge not just our credit, but our credibility as witnesses in trials, for example. Already we have AI doing a better job than most professional lawyers in predicting the judgments of the Supreme Court in the United States. Logical extension of that is why not let AI make those decisions instead of judges? Why not let, let AI make political decisions? I believe, for example, if the American population elects Donald Trump as president, which I don't think is likely, but it could happen. Exactly, Deidre. I would prefer to have a computer making that decision. Rather, <laughs> rather, there is no way a computer would ever elect Donald Trump as president. Here, here. Now, the conclusion here, here. to this is I'm not sure whether the world would be better or worse if it were controlled by computers. But this is something that we really need to think about. And we set up royal commissions of inquiry about the ethics of really trivial things like GMO farming or human cloning. These are tiny, tiny changes of technology compared with what lies ahead as a result of computers. We really need to examine this. And this is something that the technology industry totally disregards because they believe that finance rather than government should make these decisions. Thank you for your trenchant opening remarks. And uh, Margaret Heffernan. The first thing I would say is I, I have a big problem with big, right? Because part of what Deirdre is saying is that, well, big is fine. If it's too big, the consumers, the markets will vote against it. I don't see that that's true anywhere in history. I can look at big meat, 
for example, right, the, the industrial production of meat, I can see the huge ecological damage, the harm that it's doing in terms of infection resistance. I can look at big pharma and see that we have all sorts of ways of dealing with erectile dysfunction, but we have no new antibiotics for decades. You know, I can look at big oil, which brought us all sorts of spectacular things like Deepwater Horizon and the Texas City Refinery. So I think there is an implicit problem, an intrinsic problem with big. I do a lot of work with very large organizations. I work with a lot of banks. I can tell you they have become so complicated that people inside them don't know how to fix them. So big equals complex. Complex leads to incredible amounts of dysfunction and waste. Equally, you can look at big from a perspective of evolution, right? Big means a lack of biodiversity, which creates an environment in which there's a huge amount of risk. And coming to technology, the huge risk of these huge companies is that there isn't any countervailing force. There isn't any network as big as Google's. There isn't as big a controlling influence as many of these large companies have. So what big does is devastate the environment so that there is far less in the way of diversity, different kinds of products, different kinds of services, different kinds of value. And what we understand, whether you're talking about biodiversity, whether you're talking about economic diversity, whether you're talking about financial diversity, is that when you eliminate diversity, you amp up risk. So I think these very big organizations are necessarily intrinsically dangerous, even if they don't intend to be evil. Good. Well, we, we have a clear, we have a clear uh, d division of opinion. And I think, Professor McCloskey, you knew you would uh, be, <laughs> yes. be, be defending some positions. So just pick up two of those. You can tell that these companies think they're bigger than governments because they don't pay tax. Yeah. And, and secondly, the big companies <laughs> have social costs. And when they have monopolistic power, governments need to control those social costs. That's certainly true if you believe that the government is composed of philosopher kings, or as, such <laughs> as my, my colleague here. But if it's composed of ordinary humans like you and me, we're going to make mistakes with the biggest thing around. 45% of British national income is consumed through the government. Google is, what, 1%? of na national income. I, I haven't ever understood my friends uh, on the left, and I have mm, lots of them, and they're very sweet, and I was a Marxist once. But <laughs> I was, I was in my, in, my, in my mad youth. But I don't understand their concern about big when the government is the biggest thing around. And when it's so easy, and certainly in the United States, not so much here, but certainly in the United States, it's so easily capturable. If we're afraid of Donald Trump, and I am, why would you have an institution that Donald Trump could take over? Yeah, but I mean, to be fair, we're trying to talk about the, the technology companies, not the government. And the question is, yeah, do, do for their 1%, it may only be 1%, not 45%, but they are still extremely powerful institutions that Look, arguably have social costs. I'm an economic historian as well. And this has happened over and over again. In the 1890s, the fear of the sugar trust and the meat uh, barons and coal barons and so on and so forth 
was was great. And and what we did in the United States, and you did it in Britain to some extent too, was we set up government agencies to regulate these big, big things. And then the government agencies were taken over by the very companies they were intended to regulate. And it happened with remarkable speed. So if we have the philosopher kings, then the countervailing power thing would make sense. But I, I, I think we're fallen humans. I'm an Anglican. Chidwara, can you defend government? <laughs> I will defend government. I will absolutely defend government because it is really quite hypocritical to say that Google shouldn't be paying taxes because government is the biggest thing around. Google needs government. All companies need government. They need laws that people sure, in this must. room feel tr- trust enough to keep those laws. So there is a need for government. There's a need for educated people, people educated well enough to be able to go online and then buy all the Amazon products. Yeah. So actually there is a codependency um, with big companies and they are not recognising that as part of that they do they need to pay the taxes whether there are philosopher kings or not. Anatoly Yeah, I, I, th- I, th- I agree with that and I just elaborate that. I, I think there are two aspects of, of government, uh, Deidre, that, that you're missing. The very existence and survival and certainly the profitability of companies like Apple depend totally on government because that. if it were not for government protection of so-called intellectual property, the iPhone would be sold for $70 and not $700. I didn't because, say zero no, government. No, but, but therefore, for their v- very survival, these companies need government, and therefore it seems logical that they should be forced to contribute to the costs of government. That's number one. Government is also necessary, as has been shown through history, to break up monopolies. One of the ways that the American economy particularly has progressed over the last century, I think, has been by the breakup of monopolies, including the Tobacco Trust, the Standard Oil Trust. So Certainly one of the ways that the current generation of technology companies got going was because of the breakup of AT&T and IBM as a result of government antitrust policy. So there's that issue. But the other issue is the one that I was emphasizing earlier, is that there is a fundamental difference between the power of government and the power of any private entities, because at least in principle, the government is there to represent all of us as citizens rather than to represent... Now, if it fails to do so, and I agree it often does, that is our problem and our responsibility. But we can't simply say, let's forget about government and let us be in the power of entities whose sole purpose is to make money. No, well, I think there's some consensus from what I can hear that, that the government is needed and that it needs to be paid for and that probably these companies should pay their fair share of tax to do I that. Agree. So what about, uh, Margaret Heffernan, the point that these companies... Are they that threatening as monopolies when they come and go so quickly? I mean, they they emerge incredibly fast and presumably can decline, and some of them have declined incredibly fast. So maybe we're worrying too much. Yeah, I wouldn't be so sure that Google's just going to kind of disappear in the next couple of years. I think, you know, it's really important to understand that the prevailing wisdom within Silicon Valley at the moment is that the business model for the Internet of Things is insurance. Okay, so as long as I can keep track of your driverless car and I can keep track of your movements from your phone, and let's be clear, you can already do that on certain British motorways, know exactly where people are because that's how you modulate the traffic. So as long as you have a monopoly on this huge amount of data, 
then you have the ability to manage the insurance market to, to decide who gets insurance, who doesn't. And I think to Anatole's point, the issue around these companies is their legitimacy, which is who are they there for? And Google, for all that it's really cute and run by two hunky guys, you know, is not there necessarily for me or for the citizens of the company in which it operates. It is there for its shareholders, and that is a subset of the citizenry. So what I find disturbing when I go to Silicon Valley, which I do a lot, is the arrogance that says we are so smart and we are so superior to government that we need not pay any attention to it. Or as one VC said to me the other day, there's nothing wrong with education that online teaching won't deal with. There is nothing wrong with health care that getting rid of doctors won't solve. There's nothing wrong with the legal system that getting rid of lawyers won't solve. This is an attitude which is coming to dominate our world, but we haven't sanctioned it. We haven't voted for it. And it will become increasingly difficult for us not to get sucked into the economic networks that will make it possible. Before I came into Parliament, I did work as an engineer, not only in the private sector. I worked for six years for Ofcom, the regulator, the competition regulator. And whilst I was there, I would say Facebook and Google and others, their attitude was quite, you know, if we ignore government long enough, it will go away. But it's up to government, which also means it's up to you, you know, to make sure that we have in place the systems which ensure that we have competition, that we have accountability, and that these companies, these giants, are regulated in the interests of our values. Yes, in the interest of our values, because we are the country, we are the world. We are the country, you say, and yet you have two or three candidates who you can vote for. I just say the diversity of Silicon Valley, of these tech giants, they are acting, representing a small demographic, which is basically white men. So that's, I, that's who designs I, these networks. Yeah, I, I know who yeah. designs the network. But, you, you know, why do we have cell phones? We have them because you want them. You vote with your pounds and your dollars. It's for the stockholders. There's profit being earned, which is a tiny per- percentage of, of the gross of these um, companies. But the main actors in this are consumers. And so it's, it's very strange. Again, my friends on the left, and I'm, it's kind of three to one here. It is. Yeah, uh, um, they say, oh, voting is much better than market voting, voting in the polls. Well, I, sometimes it is for certain issues like um, desegregation and, and, and human rights and so on. I'm all for it. But not for f- phones or for toilet paper or for bread we need the market, and it's you all who vote in the market. I, I tell you what, That's we, we, we need to take a break now, so we will, we will uh, re-engage just after that. We've uh, just got to take a break. Just to remind you, if you want to write to us, please do that. Newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at bbcnhextra. There is the podcast. It's one edition, as I say, every week. Just uh, put BBC Newshour Extra into your search engine, and it will lead you there. And we are discussing the internet giants, the technology giants, and whether they need to be tamed in any way. And in the second half of the programme, uh, we'll be particularly looking at uh, how governments might go about trying to control these uh, companies with greater effect. And our panel, just to remind you, is 
Chi Anwara, who's Opposition Minister for Culture and the Digital Economy. We've got Professor Deirdre McCloskey from the University of Illinois, Anatole Kalecki, an economist here in the UK, and the entrepreneur Margaret Heffernan. So, yeah, we were basically talking about the democratic accountability of these companies and whether we need to think about accountability of corporations in the same way as we think about accountability of governments. So why don't we throw that open to you, Margaret Heffernan, and, and do you think that is realistic? Do you think it's appropriate? Is that something we should be trying to do? Well, so I think, you know, corporations typically take a quite narrow view of accountability. There are, of course, exceptions to that. But generally speaking, although it isn't legally the case, most corporations and their heads think that they are accountable to shareholders and that they have a requirement to maximize value for those shareholders. There are other views in that, which are that companies can't function well if they don't exist within healthy, vibrant, well-educated, safe societies. And therefore, as much as many corporations prefer to ignore this, there is a social responsibility that every company operating has to deal with, which is it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists on the back of education systems and road systems and policing systems and so on. And it itself cannot flourish without recognizing that dependency and in some respect contributing to it, whether it's by taxes or other things. But companies don't exist in a bubble. The market isn't an even playing field. We know that markets routinely fail. And one of the jobs of government is to deal with that market failure. But Anzal Kalecki, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is, is shareholder democracy, does, does it work? Or do you need more? I think so far, most, perhaps not all, but most of these technology companies have actually been exemplary in terms of their social responsibility, in terms of their willingness to reinvest a very substantial part of their profits in research and activities which are not direct, don't directly contribute to their bottom lines, but which potentially, at least in their view, and actually in my view, you know, could uh, enhance human welfare in the, in the long term. The entrepreneurs who set these companies up in almost all cases have at least announced that they're going to give away most, if not all, of the enormous wealth that they've accumulated uh, during their lifetimes, you know, for socially desirable and, on the whole, politically progressive causes which I support. So, in many ways, as companies go, they have been exemplary. And interestingly enough, because most of them have either been private companies for much of their existence, or even as public companies have so-called golden shareholdings and so on, which actually give no power at all to the so-called sharehold democracy of pension funds, investors, which I think is utterly bogus. So, so far, I think it's great. What worries me is what happens in the future, not necessarily in the next few years, in the next decades and centuries, when artificial intelligence develops, as I think it inevitably will, uh, to the point where it can take over more and more human decision-making. And that is an issue that, at the very least, I think these same entrepreneurs ought to be seriously engaged in. They should be funding. They should be looking at the ethics of it, rather than just saying, there is an ethical problem. We're just in favor of progress. Well, if it gets to that point... Yeah, and we're the good guys, yeah. If it gets to that point, then accountability will become the biggest issue. Absolutely. Accountable to whom? Accountable to whom? I think this is the big issue. They're taking data, they use our data, 
that we very often are very unaware of what they're doing with our data. They are not accountable to us, and they appear not to be accountable to governments. And I have to say, I mean, I think that what she has said is, you know, music to my ears, but most people I have met in government are so profoundly ignorant of technology. They are so unaware of how it operates, and they are so easily seduced by its charm and glitziness that it really worries me that these very, very large organizations will take their products and their technology and our blind submission to them and run where they want, which may have nothing to do with our long-term interests. So, Chianwara, I think there's probably been more effort in Europe than the States. I don't know if that's quite right to regulate some of these companies and to break up some of their monopolistic practices. Is that something that you think should happen more in the UK context or, or not? There are two main areas that we need. We need digital rights. We, we have data protection, but that doesn't address the fact that you have a 32 page terms and conditions which give away what digital rights are not defined anyway, anywhere. And, you know, Facebook says you own your own data, but that has absolutely no meaning. And with you, and it's not, it's not something that you can pass on as an asset. You know, there are just there are so many issues. It is the complexity of it. There are so many issues around this, around consumer rights. And do you own your mu- the music on your player, on your tablet? What does that mean? And what right do you have? Say Uber knows when your phone battery is running out and it can use that information to charge you more because it knows you're willing to pay more. It says it doesn't do that now, you know, but there's no, there's no, there's no transparency on that algorithm, and you have no right to find out what that algorithm is. So give digital rights, right. and identify them, debate what they are, identify digital rights, establish them, and also ensure transparency, and I think the two will do, will do the job. Professor McCloskey. I am... Astonished at the enthusiasm for um, the philosopher kings, but you know, and queens. There's a daily vote in markets. I won't say the market because that frightens people, but in markets for water. Look, we have uh, water for sale. Once water, you you would drink it out of a fountain and you'd get um, berry, 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 or polio or something. Now you have it in these nice little bottles. So, so it's, it's a vote, a daily vote. By the way, just incidentally, I, I personally am against intellectual property, which I think is a fraud and a danger. You, you only have to know that patents and copyrights were invented in the 15th century by the Venetians, those great state monopolists, to know that they're very dangerous and they should be held to a very short period. But here's the big problem with regulation in a progressing economy, which is that the regulation relates to the present technology. It has to, because if there's any truth in this world, it's that we don't know what the next technology would be. There was a concern as as recently as three years ago about the crowding of of the Internet. We wouldn't have enough channels. And then Wi-Fi was invented. And suddenly that problem goes away. And that's a deep problem in regulation. Electricity in the United States, I don't know about it here, is regulated as though electricity generation and distribution were the same as it was in 1910. And, you know, it's changed quite a lot. So it's dangerous to be so enthusiastic on the basis of our present ignorance to say, aha, 
we'll cut Google in half, and that'll that'll be great. Okay, we're going to throw this open to the audience in a minute, but first, just a couple of comments. I I think you're absolutely right, Deirdre. Regulation's not the answer, but that's exactly what worries me because we can't we can't regulate them in the future we yeah. can't because we don't know what's happening. But that is why I think there is a serious probability, I would say, a near certainty that they are going to take over the world. That no, computers computers so. are going to take over the world. Not in our lifetimes, but within the next thousand years, will the world be run by humans or artificial intelligence? It's a no-brainer, literally. Margaret Heffernan. I think it's just really important for us to understand in the light of the financial crisis that we have seen what happens in markets. We have seen what happens in unregulated markets, the derivatives markets. I think that has led everyone to wonder, well, to question that markets are always intrinsically safe. And I would also say, you know, I love technology. I've started three internet companies. I love the stuff. I use the stuff. I think it's wonderful. But I have also seen that power is innately, intrinsically corrupting. I have seen it in individuals, and I have seen it in organizations, and I have seen it in markets. And I see absolutely no reason on earth to imagine that technophiles are somehow immune to the disease of power in a way that nothing else is. We've got (laughs) one or two raving mics. Let me have a look. That was the first hand up. A lot of the discussion revolved around maybe the dichotomy between government on the one hand as either an obstacle, a regulator of internet companies, and then the tech companies on the other hand. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could discuss or explore a bit the idea of the connections between data companies and governments. So, for example, in the way they're used. So I think the majority of British MPs get some sort of funding from internet companies. Uh, In the US, I know data mining, politicians buying people's data from these tech companies uh, has happened on a large scale, especially in the run-up to the um, 2016 election. So I was just wondering if you could talk about the the interrelation and maybe the secret kind of almost revolving door between uh, tech companies and uh, the government and politicians. Thank you very much. It's certainly true, isn't it, that the, the lobbying budgets of the big ones, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon are going up quite markedly. Taken as a group, they certainly are into the tens of millions in the United States every quarter now. So, Chi, as a a member of the British Parliament, do you get a free laptop or do you get help from... That's what you're saying, right? There's there's some sort of... I get funding from the British public and this tablet, Android, is funded by the British public and taxpayers. I don't get funding from, from Google and any funding that I have to, or any freebies above a certain value, whatever, 50, 100 pounds, I have to declare. So I don't think, but I think the issue, if you're talking about, I think there are two big issues, which is the size of the lobbying budget and the fact that it's not transparent in this country because unlike the US, we do not have a a lobbying register. And also that government is looking to reduce costs in government, this government, by data sharing and data sale. I think that is absolutely right, and that is why we need digital rights for digital citizens so that that can't happen, because it's a a real issue. We'll not have all the panel come on and all of them, because lots of people want to ask questions. There's one right at the back. When we're talking about the social impact of these companies, and particularly the other things that the people that found these companies put their money towards once once they start to collect our wealth, what do we feel about the responsibility and the accountability of what, what they do with them. So the, the two examples that spring immediately to my mind are Mark Zuckerberg recently 
there was lots lots of stories about him giving a huge chunk of his wealth away to charity, but it was set up such that he maintained sort of essentially complete control over what that money went towards, even though it was described as being given away. How does Apal feel about the, the accountability of these projects when we have massive social and welfare issues around the world? Thank you. So, Margaret Heffernan, I mean, you, you talked about the need for greater accountability, yeah. but, I mean, yeah. can we go as far as saying to these companies, we prefer you studied this rather than that? No, but I think what we can't do is trust them to choose you know, what areas are worthy of investment and which areas are not, which is why you need government. I mean, I was amazed the other day to learn, okay, so we're now going to get a Google assistant that we can talk to and switch on our lights and heating. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? That's a problem we really don't have. (laughs) And yet we have some very significant issues around social justice, around climate change and so on, which are spectacularly, flagrantly not getting solved, not by the market, not by technology companies, not by anybody. So I think the truth is that these companies have every right to do, make whatever they want, but it's when we start to think that we can abdicate to them that the trouble really starts. Anatol Kolecki. Well, it is astonishing what they have been able to get away with in terms of tax avoidance, the kind of tax structures set up by Apple, Google, Facebook. If any oil company or any bank tried to set up similar structures, they wouldn't even be rejected. They would be sort of laughed out of court by their own accountants before they thought of setting up such a thing. So they have been able to get away with murder, you know, in the very simple sense of tax avoidance. And I think that's changing. And I think within the next few years, we will see technology companies, internet companies, paying comparable tax rates to other entities. I think the the question of what they do with the huge remaining amount of money that they will keep even after tax is a much more difficult one. What they do with their additional investment, not with the charitable activity and so on, but just what happens to the rapid and accelerating pace of the ability of computers to take over human functions. What are we going to do about that? Professor McCloskey, when when you just hear Anatole there saying that, you know, likely more tax will be paid, but there'll still be massive profits. When companies get this big... Is there an issue about some of these profits being used not to drive innovation, but to stifle competition? So the 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 examples are, you know, buying up small innovative companies and then basically squashing them so so that they're not competition. Here's here's an example. James Watt, the inventor of the separate condenser in in, in the steam engine in the 18th century, had a monopoly of high-pressure steam engines for 20 years, and he would indeed buy up companies proposing to make railways out of them and, and suppress them. That's one reason I don't like intellectual, intellectual property laws. But, but on this matter of the, fu- the future of computers and uh, uh, technological unemployment and so on, I, I, I ask you to remember that computers and robots have these scary names but they're tools. Hammers might be a scary name to someone who didn't like to hammer things. Or, or, or you might be against the steam engine because it'll cause, or, or, the, or the automobile will cause blacksmiths to be unemployed. And it's never been a serious cause of unemployment in the world. There's a question on the right-hand side there, yes. More recently, there's been 
almost a little rebellion against the larger companies, and people are trying to do, choose smaller companies, especially for food, and that's kind of translating more True. to technology True, now. Yeah. Um, is there anything we can do to support the smaller companies with better social responsibility uh, policies so that they have the opportunity to be viable to compete against these larger companies? Uh, that's one for the shadow minister, I think. How are you, go how are you going to encourage, how are you going to encourage a, small, competitive, innovative companies? That's a great question, and that is part of what, just to be clear, what competition policy, including the Competition Markets Authority, etc., should be and we will be encouraging to be, to be looking at. And practically, I think there are a number of things. More accountability, so more reporting requirements in terms of social responsibility, um, in terms of what done with data in terms of your digital rights that will that help and also i think we are seeing models and i know the cooperative movement the co-op is looking at this for uh, mutual based platforms which can for example bring potential taxi drivers in into contact with customers not using the technology of the 19th century but using today's technology but without um, exploiting a power relationship right now that exists you're right, we can do that, and those are one, some of the things we actually would be looking to bring forward as proposals to this government. Ma Margaret Heffernan, you say you go to Silicon Valley a fair amount. How, how do you see the, the small, new, young companies? I mean, it's very cheap to enter the market, everyone right. says. Are they strong enough yeah. to break through, or do they get crushed by the big players? Yeah. Well, in fact, what most of them try to do is position themselves so that they'll be bought by the, by the new players. They so, want to be crushed. So actually, they kind of, they kind of, they kind of edit their thinking before they even start thinking, which I think is, you know, is really concerning because it means all sorts of stuff doesn't get developed. But I do think, you know, if you want to see a really failed market, you can look at pharma. But equally, what we're starting to see there is a kind of or some co collaborative uh, approaches to new drug development which is both some smaller private entities together with some academic entities together with some industrial entities to do kind of the crowdsource development of pharma in a way that the market has absolutely failed to supply so i think there are alternative markets and you know my recommendation is you know keep an eye out for them and support them any way that you can there are many 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 ways to buy books that do not involve amazon <laughs> okay another question please yeah hi there one thing that actually concerns me about these big companies is actually the effect they have on freedom of speech all of these things are moderated whether it's taking down child pornography or taking down images of women breastfeeding and most of their moderation policies are very much treated as company secrets. How concerned should we be about the transparency of these particular issues, considering the effect they have on politics and our daily lives? Yeah, and Facebook was accused of, of liberal bias in its selection of the material it was putting up on the, on the top of their list. Well, I, I'd like to... Re I, I completely disagree with you. I think, I think there's, there's nothing to do with freedom of speech. I think, on the contrary, these entities act as enormous megaphones which allow very small, often small minority opinions to be disseminated around the world. There's a huge difference between your freedom to express yourself and say whatever you, you want and your 
what you feel your, is your entitlement to spread that to everybody around the world and have Facebook or Google acting as a megaphone for you. In fact, one of the most dangerous effects that I think these companies are having is actually in disseminating what were originally quite small minority opinions and giving the impression, for example, at the evil extreme, you know, that there are tens of millions of people who are, are racist, so, you know, who believe that Jews uh, you know, are, are plotting against the world. There used to be you know, small, small minorities, little cabals, but now you can connect yourself around the world. There are millions of people in America who believe that Barack Obama is not an American citizen. That is because of the power of the Internet. So I think their ability to, and, and their curation obligations are actually a very serious obligation, which they don't take seriously enough. I think they should be suppressing false and dangerous information more than they do, rather than less, because they are megaphones. Professor McCluskey. Yeah, well, one historical fact. In the days before the innovation of steam, circular steam from the presses, in 1792, the government of the day own, now hear this, secretly, half the newspapers in the kingdom. That's the enemy, dears. And Chian Wara. It was no matter who owns yes. half the newspapers, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or the government or nice boys with curly hair, for media to be owned by any entity is risky. What are you the talking about? The concentration of power, whether it's government or it's private it's enterprise, the concentration. Government. No, it isn't. That's not it the is. I can tell you. I can give you a thousand examples. Um, it was certainly the private sector that brought up all the bus companies in Los Angeles to ensure that there wasn't a public transport system and that people would be dependent on cars. That's and a fairy can tale. I, I, that's a fairy tale. That's on a fairy tale. Yeah. The reason why a steam engine, selling a steam engine, is not the same as selling search on, on the internet or selling likes around your network is because that steam engine is worth the same no matter how many other steam engines it's connected to. Whereas that network is only it's dependent on how many members of that network there are. So the network effects of Facebook and Google and Amazon and others are huge. And that is why it needs to be, I'm sorry you don't like the word, regulated in different ways because their power stops new competitive entrants because they haven't got the same size so network. Okay, we're, we're nearly out of time. So yeah. what I'm going to do is three people have been particularly persistent. And I'm going to ask them just to give their questions quickly, one after the other, and then we'll wrap up. So, yes. First of all, you, sir. Yeah. How worried or enthusiastic should we be about the defeat of the World Go champion by a computer that taught itself how to play the game? Anatole's worried. And there's one here in the front. Earlier, you were talking about data and companies being accountable and you don't know who, and you're also talking about digital rights for digital citizens. I may be wrong, but I think a lot of the big companies collect big data or metadata, which we're quite unaware of. And so in the ethical debate, should these companies be like making this transparent for us? And can they? And if they can't, should they stop that? There you go. There's been a suggestion from a fair few people on the panel that there's the need for a government to have an oversight and regulation of the big companies. And I think that begs the question of how do you ensure that you attract the best people to set that direction? To do the regulation? Yeah. 
Okay, literally a sentence or two each because we're, we're, we're coming up towards the end. So, Anatole, basically on that question about uh, the scary technology. Yeah, well, Owen, you, you, you answered that question for me. Yes, I think we should be worried. Artificial intelligence is no longer operating on the basis of pre-programmed instructions. It is beginning to think for itself. It is beginning to observe the play of Go players and therefore narrow what would otherwise be, even for computers, an infinite number of calculations which are required. The number of potential moves in Go is larger than the number of atoms in the universe. OK, and just on, on recruiting good regulators as the sort of representative of the politicians, Chianwara. What is great about the younger generation, as I put it, and this is, this is, um, there's ev- evidence for this, is that they do require more of a social purpose in their careers. And you see that in the, re- in the way in which Google and other big companies try to attract people. They want to know that they're making a difference. The greatest way to make a difference, and that's why I moved from the private sector to the public sector, is through effective government because that can liberate, educate, empower and change people for the better. And that is the wow we we look to attract digitally savvy people into government to give the right direction. Margaret Heffernan? What I would say is actually if you don't do that, what you will find yourself facing, the new Silicon Valley buzzword, is algorithmic regulation, yeah. which is yeah, regulation sure. not being done by politicians, but being done by computers. And I would argue that if Deirdre doesn't like regulation by people, I don't think she's going <laughs> to like it a lot more when it's done by machine. Professor McCloskey, last word. Well, my last word will be in Latin. The Romans said, quis, cust- quis custodiat ipsos quis custodius? Who is to regulate the, the very yeah. regulators? The people. Yeah, the people. <laughs> the people. You bet. You bet. You thank the you. People. Thank you very much. That was an edition of NewsHour Extra recorded on location in Hay on Wye. And if you liked the programme, do make sure you never miss another edition. You can subscribe to our podcast. That's BBC NewsHour Extra into your podcast app or search engine. And you can write to us. The way to do that, email newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or on Twitter at bbcnhextra. We do try to reply to all the communications you send to us. But for now, with that programme in Hay on Why from Owen Bennett-Jones, goodbye. <laughs>